Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 202. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, who's finally back, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we talk about all the tech that Paul's used in the last two months in Saudi Arabia. Let's get to it. Welcome to the show, everybody. Paul, long time, no podcast. How's it going? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. I feel bad. I mean, when I took <laughs> off for this last trip, I thought that I was going to be able to record because, you know, we normally record on Thursday evenings, which is mm-hmm. Friday, very early morning, late night when I'm in the Middle East. Yeah. And I can wake up, record for a couple hours and then go back to sleep. And I thought I was going to be able to do that. And out of two months, I got to do that once. <laughs> so, uh, you know, here I go, continue my track record of being the world's worst podcast co-host ever. Uh, <laughs> but that was a fun recording, actually, that one that we did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, you are, I, I wouldn't say the worst. You, you're uh, <laughs> just one of, <laughs> just one of, yeah, no, it's the exact opposite. You're, you're out there boots on the ground, gathering content. That's what you're doing. So, you know, it's, it's great. I love it. I, I mean, you're gathering a lot more content than I am, to be honest with you. So there you get, there you go. Yeah. You know, I got into this podcast way back when to keep myself one toe in the, uh, in the field in archeology. span And I'd always considered myself a field archeologist, not necessarily a very good one, but uh, one that is somebody who really enjoyed it. And the way things have developed over the last few years, this has been, you know, not just a, a lifeline to keep me in the field, but now that I am back, you know, <laughs> fully fledged in the field, it's uh, it's it's great because I have these these opportunities with you to kind of reflect on what I'm doing and to talk to other people that are doing other interesting things, and then sometimes I can take some of the work I do and you know have side discussions with them about the work that they do. You know, it, it's life's kind of serendipitous, right? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so it's, uh, it's, it's worked its way back into my life in a really interesting way. And and because of the podcast, that's a big part of it. Well, that's awesome. And it's awesome to see how, I guess, how things have progressed, you know, since you joined the show. And I don't know, did you have a chance to hear episode 200? I don't know how much chance you had to listen to podcasts. I didn't have a whole lot of chance to listen to that. I think I probably listened to that episode on my flight back home. But yes, I did listen to it. I always make it a point to listen to all our podcasts and to uh, try to use it to improve. And, you know, maybe slowly, itsy bitsy bits at a time I have. But uh, that was fun. Well, the, yeah, for any, yeah, exactly. For anybody that didn't hear that, it was a really fun one. And I'm only mentioning it because you're talking about, you know, when you joined the podcast and I had to look back at it, it was episode 61. So in the context of 202 episodes, which is what this recording is, 
that's a lot. I mean, you've been here for, yeah. I mean, obviously long, longer than any of the other co-hosts by far. So that's amazing. I love it. Yeah. I wonder if uh, that counts when you count the time that I'm not here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in that amount of episodes, it is still not very many times. So, you know, oh, okay. uh, although it's been more in the last couple of years. <laughs> well, yeah, like I said, I'm back in the yeah. field, literally yeah, exactly. and the field writ large, but uh, I'm, I'm out yeah. of commission <laughs> half of last year and uh, a couple months already of this year. Well, along those lines, then let's talk about where you've been the last couple of months. I mean, we kind of led up to it when before you left and uh, just chatted about, you know, what you guys are going to be doing a little bit. But uh, you were in Saudi Arabia. Tell us what brought you there. Right. So uh, any long term listeners will remember that I was in Saudi last summer as well. I was working for an American CRM company that was doing some work there. The company has more projects and has expanded their presence in the country. Uh, so they brought me out again. And this hmm. time I was working on a series of different projects that the company I'm working for was hired by a group called the Royal Commission for Al-Ula, which is, Al-Ula is a, a fantastic city in um, north of Medina, uh, <laughs> always. And it, and like I mentioned on the, the last recording that I was actually on, there's a ton of archaeology in the area. There's the, the major site of Didan, there's the site of Hegra. Those are two of the things that if you don't know anything else about Saudi archaeology, you may have heard of one or both of those. Wow. So because, I'm, you know, this is contract archaeology. I'm not at liberty in the same way I am when I talk about the work that I do in Lagash, which is an academic mm -hmm. project, uh, at the same kind of liberty to talk exactly about what I'm doing. But I did a lot of interesting work with a lot of interesting people uh, who are very good at the work that they did. And we used a bunch of tech, some of it old, some of it new to me, that I think, uh, you know, we might have an episode here just talking about the different kinds of tech that I was using <laughs> and some of the opinions and some of the experiences that I formed from it. Nice. Well, I'm looking forward to that. We've got a whole bunch of things that you wrote down here that we can talk about. So it'll be interesting to talk about it. Hey, first, before we get there, you've got photogrammetry on the list here. And I just got to ask, did you see, because we, we talked about this on the archaeology show that came out yesterday as we're recording this. Uh, I can't remember what episode number it was, but either way, we talked about the brand new scans that were released of the Titanic. Have you seen that? Oh, I saw, I didn't like dig into any of the news articles, but you know, on my oh. news feed, I saw some of those and yeah. those are pretty spectacular and so, oh, so eerie. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. It's really cool. You get a chance to take a closer look at it. What I really like is, is really what you can tell from that. And from an archaeological standpoint, mm -hmm. this, it's interesting to note these things because sometimes we think of photogrammetry as just, well, I want to essentially grab this object and pull it into virtual space for you know measurements and other stuff like that. But you might be able to see things, especially something like this that's underwater, very murky. You know, it's 12,500 feet down underwater. There's literally no light down there unless you bring it, right? Mm -hmm. You can't see the whole thing all at once. You just can't light it that much. It's too big. But when you see it like this, the thing that struck me was how the bow plowed into the ground. I mean, there, it looks like a mm -hmm. meteor crater with this, with the dirt piled up around the bow. And, and it's still like that. It hasn't, you know, through ocean currents or whatever, it hasn't flattened itself back out or, or anything like that from that disturbance in over a hundred years. And yeah, it was amazing to me. And also the other thing is amazing to me is how intact the center section is probably not internally, but externally, the whole center section, you know, from where it busted off the stern and where the bow broke, but it's still kind of attached. It looks like you could float that to the surface and attach a bow on a stern and sail it off. <laughs> it doesn't look too bad. 
Yeah, that's the uh, the photo that I was thinking of in in particular, and you know the front and end, the, well, the bow and the stern are uh, are totally yeah. you know, destroyed, flattened practically, and the, the <laughs> right. smokestacks are gone. But that that middle section does look like yeah, you could probably just go for a stroll up and down the hallways. Probably not, sure. but that's what it looks like from the outside. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Could you imagine some higher technology years from now where somebody just turns that into a hotel at the bottom of the sea, that whole center section, just like, you know, that's go down there and (laughs) maybe not. It is pretty much a graveyard. So there probably there might be some regulation against that. So anyway, speaking of locating things, one of the first things on your list here is mobile GIS. Let's talk about that. Right. On my list of topics, things I could discuss today, I kind of broke it down into data collection, data processing, and data storage. And mm-hmm. you know, most of what I do uh, when I'm on a job like this, I'm a field tech. So I am primarily concerned with data collection. And so mobile GIS, we've discussed plenty of times. I discussed and have written an article that's in review right now about using mobile GIS at Lagash for a Hmm. a surface survey. And we've used a whole bunch of different kinds. What we use on this project is we use a product called ICMT GIS. And yeah, this is a weird one. I, I've definitely used ones that seem much more modern. This this one, mm-hmm. it does everything we need to, but uh, it has a lot of things that as you use it, you learn not to do because it'll crash the program. It's right. really funny looking in that it looks like it's ported from Windows 95, and I think it probably was. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I'm not I'm not being facetious. I really think it right. kind of was. And there are a lot of things that you just can't do. You know, Certain gestures that you're used to, like on your iPad, won't work. Copy and paste into the fields doesn't work. Right. (laughs) And it's not, you know, I'm not here to rag on this program in particular, though I happily will. Uh, (laughs) But (laughs) what I did enjoy, and this is what I want to talk about more, was I learned two things that really stuck out at me. One of them was with this one in particular, when you go to create a new feature, it pops up a box, asks you how you want to record it, what the, the layer is. And the, the, the terminology isn't always the same between different parts of the programs, between features and layers mm. and so on. And that, so that's a little confusing. It also gives you an ID that you can edit. And what we found out last summer, if you edit that ID and you give it the same ID as an existing object, yeah. it crashes the entire program because that ID is an internal ID for the program itself. And so I was thinking about that just as a general point of programming. And I realized this in writing my own total station software, you don't have to present everything to the end user, right? There's no need to right. present that internal ID to the end user. If they mess with it, they potentially mess with the data. There's no re- no good reason for it. And that's the same thing I found with my own programming was I was doing things like uh, my initial messages when you would save some data, it said, yes, this point was successfully saved to the blah, blah, blah database backend. I'm like, well, mm-hmm. no, that, who cares? <laughs> the end user does not care what database right. you know, that I'm using SQLite and that I saved it successfully to the SQLite database. What they care about is, yes, I saved the data. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? I literally need a check and, mark. That's all I need. <laughs> yes, that's all. I, it's saved. Go Done. you, right? <laughs> Done. Yeah. And so this is just kind of a, a more of a call than to programmers is realize who your target audience is. And even though when you're doing your programming, it's very tempting to give lots of detail. A lot of the times that detail is meaningless to the person that's actually using it, or in the case of what we saw with this ID, this internal ID in this program, is dangerous to the end user. 
Yeah. The other thing that I really did like, though, is that we used it uh, last summer and then again this summer for mapping, right? So you'd go and you okay. could trace the outline of a site or you could trace the outline of features on sites or drop points on individual small features and so on. Part of our group was collecting with paper and somewhere in the specs it said that we that would provide RCU a paper sketch map of each site. Okay. And I thought how silly that is that we could give them a very accurate map done in the GIS, save it as a, you know, to the, do a screen cap, <laughs> save yeah. that to the camera roll on the iPad and then annotate it there and hand them, right. if it has to be on paper, print that out and hand them that. But then you'd have the advantages of both. You'd have the stuff that, that you really have a hard time doing in a GIS indicating, you know, something that's off screen, like, you know, next site over is 200 meters that direction, something like that, that you would n really easily do on a, on a paper map that you're annotating by hand. But you, with those paper maps, you, you lose the accuracy, you know, things right. aren't in proportion, things are a little off of where they actually are. North isn't necessarily exactly north. All those little things that, that, irk me. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking that that whether you're using this or any other thing, that you could actually combine those two kinds of modes of collecting data. Well, okay. So when you said some of the team was collecting on paper, do you mean they were, were they, for the mapping, were they literally like compass and paste mapping or, or were they taking a printout of a, of a GIS map and annotating it, like you said, or literally just sketching no. out the whole site? literally just sketching out they oh had paper God. forms that that we, <laughs> yeah i'm doing try to be nice um <laughs> it wow. was driving me kind of crazy but because it was said in the specs to rcu that we would give them paper sketch maps it was taken to be literally paper from start to end wow yeah Born and so paper. i was i was <laughs> a little <laughs> i was a little bothered by that <laughs> yeah but, uh, that seems seems a little a little but much i think that you know again they're really it does seem a little much, but they're they're again they're they're very experienced archaeologists. They're very good sure. at what they do, and I think that that I can present them next time I go back, which I may or may not do. But uh, if I go back, I can present to them what I think is a, a smarter workflow that won't slow them down at all. Still allows them to present something on paper to the client at the end, but then brings in the stuff that I care about accuracy and the data collection with the GIS. Well, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love compass and paste maps, sketch maps. I, I really had mm. a good time making those when I used to do that. And I haven't done one in shit, probably eight years, eight or nine years. I mean, it's been a long time, maybe even 10 years because it's been all, it's been all GIS, you know, from this point out. And when the BLM Nevada, I can't remember what it was, when they actually stopped pretty much requiring those and you could just turn in a, a GIS sketch map, then everybody started doing that. But compass and paste maps are so fun to do. And even if you're not an mm -hmm. artist, it allows you to kind of feel like an artist, so to speak. There is real value to it, and especially in the ways that you can annotate and the ways that you can indicate things like mm -hmm. slope that are much harder to do if you're just doing a top-down, very clinical, dry sort of GIS tracing things map. Right, um, right. So I think that there is a, there is room to grow there, and I think that this is one of the things I've really been enjoying about doing the field work is that in my mind, I have a, a, a notion of what might be the best, mm -hmm. but... yeah. When the rubber hits the road, you know, in reality, you find that there, that there are actually a few different bests and maybe there's a good way to combine them into making the, the you know, the super best. Okay, then. So given 
the language in the scope of work, what were you using for photography? <laughs> I'm just curious. <laughs> so we were using a combination. We were using iPads and we were using DSLRs. And okay. what I've come to decide is that iPads or Android tablets, it doesn't have to be iPads, it's just that I've been using iPads exclusively for the last couple of years. iPad mini sixes, mm -hmm. which I think are phenomenal. The, the cameras on these are not as good as a DSLR, but if you're carrying this piece of equipment, the tablet out into the field anyhow, and you've got a camera that is really, really good, might as well use it and prioritize that. I would still use DSLRs for certain sorts of things, right? So if I'm doing really mm -hmm. carefully composed art photos, if I'm doing really carefully composed object photos, I definitely would use the DSLRs because I can control things like depth of field that I can't with a, uh, a tablet or a phone camera. But yeah. for almost everything else, the iPads have it and they have that built-in GPS, which is so helpful when it comes time to figure out you know, what photograph was where. They'll even tell you which direction you were facing. And that's encoded there in the EXIF data. So right. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's all so useful, so helpful that I think that it really trumps the perceived advantage of a DSLR in most cases. Right, right. Yeah, I agree. And the photography off the mobile device is getting better and better. I, I'm actually rocking an iPhone 12 still, and the 15, mm -hmm. I think, is coming out this September. Yep. We're, we're going to transition at this time. I just, the 13 wasn't enough for me to switch. And, and then the 14, it was kind of an off year, you know, that there wasn't many advances mm -hmm. either from that one. So I was like, we're going to wait. So it's the longest I've gone with without switching out my iPhone, I think, since the iPhone came out. But the point is, I think the last model or the one before that does have depth of field and other things that you can even do in post, right? So you can select right. on a different focal point um, and, and do some of that stuff. And it's just getting better and better and better. So I think the days of the DSLR are kind of numbered. Yeah, I mean, depth of field, that my understanding is it's software. It's not really the... Um, That's true. I mean, yeah. they do have multiple lenses. So there's a little bit that can be affected that way. But whenever I'm on a Zoom call, people comment on how good my image looks. Not me, but it is good. <laughs> the image. No, no, it is and good. And that's because I'm using <laughs> a real camera with a real lens. And mm -hmm. I've got the aperture all the way wide open. So the, the depth of field is really narrow, just on you know the tip of my nose to the back of my head, that, that much movement. Yeah. And I'll go out of focus. You know, it does make a difference. That versus sure. the fake blurring the background, which just doesn't look quite as tasty. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. But again, if you're bringing that iPad into the field and you're using it for your data collection, I just, I'm really having a hard time at this point to understand why you would also need a DSLR. Yeah. Good point. Well, we could go on this for a long time. We've had whole episodes on cameras before too. So. Oh yeah. And I love them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, well, let's go ahead and take a break because we got a lot more to talk about and we'll do that on the other side back in a minute. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome back to episode 202 of the Architect Podcast. And we're talking about Paul's 
trip to Saudi Arabia for the last couple of months where he's been doing some work over there and all the tech that he got to use while he was there. Mm. So let's switch over to GNSS. You you mentioned that you were using a, a Leica GNSS receiver on this project. Let's hear about that. Yeah, so I don't have a whole lot to report on that. Any of us who've used GNSS receivers now uh, with the corrections, there's differences in interface, there's certain differences in capabilities, but uh, but the Leica system we used was pretty good for us. I mm-hmm. had two different projects I worked on that were in the same abandoned, well, started hundreds of years ago, abandoned in the 1980s village. And we laid down a few control points at one end of the village. And then later for a separate project, we laid down some more control points using that GNSS and everything matched up which was really nice. Nice. Yeah. nice. So that was using Leica's own satellites, which are, you know, in geosynchronous orbit around the, uh, or synchronous stationary. I can't remember now. Uh, they're in orbit yeah. Yeah. <laughs> around the, the, uh, the equator. So it's reliant to a certain extent on having a clear view to the south, which is problematic sometimes in Saudi because it's so mountainous, mm-hmm. right? And yeah, lots of sure. cliffs and things that will get in the way. But fortunately, it didn't. And we had these two different sets of, of surveying control points that we then based off uh, our other points off of and everything lined up really nicely between them. And so that, that was just nice to see. I like that you know, this kind of high precision mm-hmm. GNSS with the corrections is is ubiquitous now. You know, there's so many different sure. products that you can get that'll do the same thing. They all work very similarly. And it's, you know, a great general purpose tool. Now, the reason why I'm leading off with that is that, you know me, I'm, I'm a total, total station nerd. <laughs> <laughs> and what we matched up based off of those initial control points were... Points that we shot with total stations. So I was I was really in my element there. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Again, we don't want to get into the specifics of the project, but just from a technical standpoint, I just kind of assumed you were doing survey and stuff out there. Were you guys doing excavations? Because I mean, with total station would imply yes. Yeah. So I was initially brought out to do landscape surveying. Okay. Survey. You're right. Pedestrian survey, vehicle travel mm-hmm. survey, whatever. But there are... Uh, bunch of ongoing projects. So I was doing uh-huh. some excavation. I was monitoring burial excavations. We were, you know, that that village that we're talking about, we were monitoring the clearance of those of the, the buildings themselves and some hmm. of the um, you know, so that they could be consolidated and reconstructed for tourism, basically. Sure. So the total stations, you know, what they have and what I've been saying we we're not going to get rid of them anytime soon because what they have versus the GNS receivers is that they work when you don't have a clear view of the sky. Right. Yes, you do have problems of, you know, visibility. You've got to be able to see that prism if you're going to shoot it. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. But we would lay our control points with the GNSS receivers and set up our total station and lay all our subdatums from those. And it worked great. And yeah. I think that that's for the foreseeable future, that's going to be what everybody's doing. Uh, and that is what everybody's doing. I'm not breaking any new ground here, but in concert, the total stations and GNSS receivers make such a good package, Yeah, but you can't get rid of one or the other and still expect anything nearly the same quality. I mean, it's really the, the right. sum is the uh, sum is more than no. The whole is more than some of its parts. <laughs> yeah, I mean the, the total station's only as good as the point it's sitting in space, right? If that point's garbage, exactly. then it doesn't matter what else you recorded. <laughs> 
Yeah. Right. With that village, one of the things we had to do was a lot, actually also with the burials I was talking about, we had to do photogrammetry mm-hmm. and we wanted the photogrammetry all to be very tightly spatially referenced to the world. And okay. so that's, you know, having that combination really helped. Other thing that was interesting, we were using a much older Leica total station and uh-huh. a few things like it had a, a laser plummet which I always nice. thought was kind of cool. I've never actually used one before. I've only ever used optical plummets. Oh, um, yeah, they're fun. If you're setting up indoors, great. If you're setting up in the bright Saudi sun, forget it. You can't see that point <laughs> at work. all. <laughs> you may or may not be over the, the, the control point. Yeah, you, <laughs> we're, you know, all huddle around the tripod and try to like, you, you get your hand right underneath the tripod where you can see the dot in the palm of your hand and try to like slowly bring it all the way down to the ground to see if right. <laughs> you can get to the point. Um, the... Uh, this was actually a little triumph of mine. Was that it records the data, saves it locally, but there was no way of exporting the data. Hmm. What I found out was that this older Total Station has formatting files, and you can upload a formatting file that then you uh-huh. translate your data through on export. You say export, you know, this job, run it through this formatting file, and you get it out in whatever format. You, oh, you know you tell it to do. So I found some formatting files online and I tried to, you know, hack them and I ended up erasing some jobs. Fortunately, (laughs) old jobs didn't matter (laughs) without actually successfully getting the data. In the end, I found the name of the program and it's a program that's been abandoned for like 15 years that like I had once put out it barely ran on Windows, just barely. <laughs> and most of what I went, tried to do with it would crash. But fortunately, the part of this program that generated those formatting files still ran. So I got a formatting file output that I could then export all my data as a CSV. And then nice. import into my into GIS, import it into Metashape for our control points for mm-hmm. photogrammetry. You know, And so that, that was a, a little triumph. And that was just me being my tenacious self when it comes to you know <laughs> getting data off of equipment <laughs> by any means right. necessary and yeah and that worked so using the gns receivers to get our, our really tightly controlled control points and then working off of that with the total station was really good and then i also you know because i got to play with the total station a lot i uh, i trained a couple of my coworkers on how to use that one and uh, mm-hmm. we came up with a plan for how to lay the hundreds of points that we'd need for the uh, photogrammetry inside that village oh, yeah. and it worked really well and it was it was a lot of fun it was uh you know i got to put on my educator hat with that you know and nice. they were great guys and really smart really talented but they didn't know that particular total station well, I didn't either, but at least I knew enough that I could you know, yeah. wing it. I think it's incredibly important anytime you have a total station on site because, I mean, to be honest, you just don't see them very often, right? And mm. Anytime you do have one on site, if somebody, <laughs> hopefully somebody knows how to run it. I think I've told this story before, but hopefully somebody yeah. knows how to run it. But if you do, don't just hog the total station, right? It's fun. Once you get doing it, I mean, it can be tedious a little bit if you're doing it like all day, every day for weeks and weeks at a time. But bring other people in and teach them and spread that knowledge out. I'm really glad you did that. So you end up having one on site and like nobody knows how to use it. And that's what happened to me. Shoot. Probably back in like 2009, I think it was, it was right before I went to grad school and there was a total station on site. Literally nobody there knew how to use it. And come to find out Mm -hmm. we were like two weeks into a full scale block excavation and hadn't taken any points 
come to find out the project manager didn't know how to set up the total station. Like she'd had no idea yeah. the field director, I guess she had no idea how to do it. So I was like, can I just take this home for the weekend? And I YouTubed and looked up manuals and cause I'd used a total station before this was a Leica actually. And I'd used a Topcon mm -hmm. before I'd never used a mm -hmm. Leica. So I, know, I understood the basic principles of it, but I still had like no idea. And I, by the end of the weekend, I had mapped my parents like backyard and their deck and everything. Cause that's where we were staying. <laughs> yeah, I figured it out. <laughs> and then I became like the total station person for like the next month that we were there. So yeah, but it's, it's always nice to spread that knowledge out a little bit of any technology, really, you know, it's, really, it's yeah. better, more people know it than less. So yeah, and the total station, and you you hinted at it right there, is that you know, the principles are exactly the same. Geometry does yeah. not change between that Leica and that Topcon. Right. The Sakia's trigonometry is exactly the same that the Nikon's trigonometry is. You know, how they label things, how they name things, what menus you have to go through. That's what changes from one to another. Sure. And if you teach somebody the principles that are going to apply to yeah. any total station, regardless of brand, then it just becomes a matter of figuring out how to negotiate the uh, the interface on that yeah. particular total station that you have on site. And so that's really what I like to focus on. I mean, back in Lagash, there was a young man that was uh, from the village that did some work for us around the house, but he also, he wanted to become an engineer. And so he saw me with the total station. He said, you're going to teach me how to use the total station. So I... <laughs> Every day would spend a couple hours with him, showing him how to set it up and, and you know, take points. And he kept on saying, oh, but I want to learn the software. I was like, hey, it doesn't matter. The, 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 the program is going to be different sure. on whatever they have on the thing. But if you understand these principles and you can set it up quickly and efficiently and consistently, you'll be fine. You'll learn the, the, the software that they have on that project that you're working on. So he took that seriously. And uh, then a few weeks after I left Iraq last last winter, he uh, he sent me a text saying, hey, and it was a picture of himself wearing a white hard hat because he landed that engineering job that he wanted. <laughs> and I was so, so proud for that. But, but you know, okay, so a little bit of brag here, but but mostly it's it's about the, the importance of teaching people this stuff. You, you know, you became the total station guy and I don't mind being the total station guy in a project, but yeah. having one person that gets tied up with that one piece of equipment, if you have right. a sick day, if, um, oh, yeah. if, for whatever reason, you leave the site early, everybody else is in trouble. You, you, you know, it mm -hmm. really helps every project to spread that knowledge around as widely as possible. And then it totally demystifies it. The only mysterious bit is, you know, how do I get through the Sokia's operating system? Because it's really kind of weird. And I, you know, and it's yeah. based off of decisions that were made, you know, 30 years ago and haven't changed, even though the, the hardware platforms could, could take the changes. Yeah, it always goes back to... One thing I've really taken from uh, my time in the Navy, because you're you're always you know looking at your next rank and your your next advancement, right? And they don't say don't do that, you know, focus on that because it makes you just a better whatever you do. It makes you better at that job by by focusing on the next thing up because it's usually more advanced and there's more you have to learn. But the common concept was train your replacement. Whatever you're doing, wherever you're mm. at, train your mm -hmm. replacement. And by training your replacement, you not only allow, well, the Navy in this case, the ability to promote you because somebody's going to slide into your spot, but then you're also yeah. learning more about what you want to know by training somebody else, you know, and mm -hmm. it's just a, it's just a good thing. And I've, I've kind of done that with everything I've tried to do is train your replacement, you know, and, and don't, don't have a big ego over it thinking I'm the only one that should know how to do this. You know what I mean? There's always plenty of stuff to do. So no, and, uh, you know, it's an old adage, but to, you know, if you really want to learn something, you teach it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. 
And, uh, yeah. and that definitely applies for this. And then if you just make that your challenge, I'm going to learn this well enough to teach it. And you start to teach it, then you find out that you learn more about it. And as you're teaching it, you know, invariably, somebody's going to say, how come you didn't do it this way? Or why, why is that? <laughs> And it might be because it was a blind spot and you just didn't think of it, or there might be some very valid reason why you didn't do it this way. And then you can use that to further enhance their understanding of it. You know? Right. And so uh, it's always fun. Exactly. All right. Well, before we go to our next break, let's talk about laser scanners. You've got that down here. And you've got actually a number of like really advanced scanning techniques down here for this one project. It sounds like it's uh, pretty impressive the amount of gear they took out there to do this, but let's talk about the laser scanners before we talk about the other stuff. Right. So the laser scanners, this is something that I've, you know, I've seen and heard about for a long time and never got the chance to play with. And I was yeah, very lucky either. that on this, uh, on this village documentation project, that was one of the deliverables that was promised was uh, laser scans of the buildings. So after they had been cleared out, uh, we went back through the uh, the laser scanner that we had was this handheld thing. You know, so you've seen laser scanners sometimes mounted on a tripod, a static thing. These ones right. were a handheld one that you could walk around and do the insides cool. of rooms and do multiple rooms and they connect them all together. Nice. I didn't get the chance to play with the data processing, so I can't comment on that. I hope that I do get to uh, before too long. But the yeah. data collection, there was, you know, it was, it's not unlike using the, the total station or the GNSS receiver in that. It's mostly, you know, what buttons do you press at what time? How, what's the order of doing things? What are the best practices? And then you go. Uh, so the one that we used was a GeoSlam Zeb Horizon. Um, hmm. And it says Zeb right on the side, which I thought was terribly unfortunate because that's mighty close <laughs> to the Arabic word for penis. And I thought it was... <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. Maybe not appropriate for me to be walking around holding my Zev in my hand. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, they used this for a number of years, and uh, apparently I was the first person to notice this. So maybe that says something more about me than about anybody else or about the company name. But anyhow, it was great. So it works for about 20 minutes at a run before it starts getting too hot. And that was okay. for this particular one, and it's a few years old, that's really the limiting factors, the, the, the heat mm -hmm. that it generates while it's catching all these points. And it's, you know, it's handheld, looks kind of like one of those guns that you use for, uh, for packing tape and a sling bag that's got a battery and data collector on it and connected by a wire to, the, to that handheld bit that has this spinning laser beam shooter outer thing on the end of it. <laughs> that's a technical term. And, yes. you know, it takes tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of points, and then those get stitched back together into models. We did use, again, that uh, GNSS receiver as a total station, I think just a GNSS receiver, to lay down some control points outside that we set up tripods over with a special kind of target. In this case, okay. it was a styrofoam ball. So after you're done scanning the room for the rooms, we did you know a dozen rooms or so in the 20 minutes, mm -hmm. you head out to where you have those control points set up and you scan in those balls and then you know exactly where the other scans live in space because you've got three other points that are spatially referenced to correct those initial three. And so that was a, that was an interesting process and it was, again, fun because it was bringing in imaging techniques but also bringing in the surveying techniques that, uh, that you know, are my lifeblood. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not cheap though. <laughs> that one that we had cost 40,000 plus dollars. Oh my God. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it may be a case of once you've spent that money, you, you look for any excuse to use that equipment, but I do yeah. see it being extremely useful for 
you know, anybody that has to do things that are inside of places, right? Inside of buildings, inside of caves in particular. I think that something like this would be incredibly helpful for full documentation of the site. Yeah, I'm just looking on their website and some of the images they've got is, you know, just like demo images look very, very impressive. One of them is colored. It's like a building that has coloration to it. I would imagine that yep. has to be added in post though, right? The thing is not actually recording that information. It's just distance and plotting a point map, I would assume, right? Well, I've got some news for you. There's a digital camera connected to the front of this. Really? This scanner thing that's taking a video the entire time. And somehow oh that God. gets merged into the uh, <laughs> into the final product. Again, because I didn't do any of the, the processing, I don't know yeah. how that's done. And I really hope to learn that. But um, yeah, but yeah it, it, it brings in colors in some manner. It might just be Jeez. coloring the individual points of the point cloud, or it might be using it to stitch together a texture map. I honestly don't know. But yep, wow. it's, it's, it's a tool. It's a tool that is going to be seeing increasing use, I'm sure, over the next few years. Awesome. Well, that's pretty awesome. All right. Well, let's take our final break and come back and, and wrap up this tech discussion on the other side. Back in a minute. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome back to episode 202 of the Archaeotech Podcast. And we are wrapping up this discussion with Paul about his time the last couple of months in Saudi Arabia and all the fun tech stuff they got to use. And not just because they have it. Well, sometimes it's because you have it, but also because, it, man, it really maximizes your time out there and, and brings back the kind of data that you, you can really do something with without having to go back and back and back, you know, something like that. It's not like doing archaeology out here, where, mm -hmm. you know, even here in Nevada, you know, when, well, I'm in California, but anywhere around here, it's so big, you know, you got to drive five hours if you forgot to do something round trip just to go do something else. But like, how often can you fly back to, you know, Saudi Arabia and say, oh, we forgot to do this, you know, so do as much as you can. <laughs> then, uh, <laughs> then hopefully that's enough, right? Along those lines, photogrammetry, you guys were doing, you guys, I mean, along with laser scanning, you're also doing photogrammetry. So it almost seems like the photogrammetry is... I don't know, almost not necessary if you're going to the laser scanning route. Like, what's the reason for doing both of them? Did you use them for different things? In the, the village documentation, we use them for the same thing. Okay. But I also use photogrammetry with those burials, and we use it oh, in yeah. other cases too. So, yeah, they're complementary. I think that in some ways, it's kind of like taking photographs and drawing, right? Mm -hmm. Even though these are both fully digital techniques as opposed to, you know, photography and hand drawing. I, yeah. It just doesn't hurt to take that extra day. And not if it takes a whole lot of time either. I mean, the photogrammetry for a burial, I'd take a couple hundred photos, 150 maybe, mm -hmm. and then spend 
no, I don't know, maybe two hours max, absolute max processing the grave afterwards. Sure. You know, and a lot of that was me learning. I think it's really funny, actually. A couple of years ago, we had a, an episode talking about structure for motion. And mm-hmm. to me, it was brand new at the time. And I'm, you know, I'm a little scared to listen to that episode again, because I'm sure <laughs> I said a lot of really silly, naive stuff. Uh, and here I spent a lot of time working with Agisoft Metashape, processing photogrammetry, the stuff from the burials and the stuff from the village, and, you know, got to be pretty comfortable with it. Nice. I've used other photogrammetry programs too. I've got on my computer here, I've got uh, WebODM, which I've used for drone mapping, and I've also used for building uh, some models of actually of a, a privy, <laughs> pretty exciting nice. stuff Yeah, and some testing and so on. But, you know, each program has its own strengths and weaknesses. Metashape, if anything, it's way, way, way too deep. Kind of in that thing of, that I was saying earlier about what you need to show the user and what you don't need to show them. The terminology isn't always the same through things. Mm-hmm. It's a little funky, but I think that once you've settled on a particular workflow as being the best or at least the good enoughest, <laughs> you run with that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and that's what we did. You know, we tried a whole bunch of different things and then we figured out a way that we could really easily get our buildings aligned to the world and then, you know, bring in the other photos that didn't align themselves perfectly the first few times, get 90 plus percent of the photos to align and run through the processing to whatever point we had to get to. So, you know, that was fun. That was interesting. I definitely... I'm much more experienced with it. I still have no idea what all the different settings in Metashape allow me to do, how they improve the the, the final product, how they don't improve the final product, how they um, take extra time or make things go faster. No real knowledge of that. I just know that I had a workflow that was very consistent and it took me a bit of experimenting to get to that point. That was fun. It was interesting to to actually feel like to to get a deep dive into that in a way that I hadn't before. And part of that, and I'll touch on this a little bit, is that, you know, when we're taking those hundreds of photos, we couldn't upload all that. Our cell connection, our cell connection, our internet connection is through SIM cards, through Wi-Fi hotspots. So, you know, yeah, yeah, trying to upload gigs and gigs of data would just never work. Mm -hmm. So we were instead stuck with having to process things to a certain point locally. So that way, somebody back home wanted to finish the processing for the report, for example, they didn't have to get, you know, those hundreds and hundreds of photographs, they could just get, you know, a farther along down the road, you know, step of the the process. And hopefully that's a lot less data. So along those lines, I mean, you're talking about a lot of things that you guys were doing that is just generating like mountains and mountains of data. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you did have the ability to, you know, maybe send this off and, and upload it to the mothership, was that part of the data storage strategy or are there just like also mountains of hard drives out there where you were storing everything as well? Yeah, so there are mountains of hard drives, which makes me kind of nervous. There are also a couple <laughs> QNAP servers, an older one that they had decommissioned but still had online because they're afraid to fully decommission, sure. which I've seen in companies and places before where you have some software or some piece of hardware that, I don't know, Sony might still be using it. <laughs> and so <laughs> it never gets turned offline, and so it, they end up being zombies. We also yeah. had another QNAP server that we were actively using, and that's where all our data went for the photogrammetry, uh, as well as other things. A lot of the GIS went there. GIS data, shapefiles are particularly big. 
mm-hmm. but the photos, especially those DSLR photos, yeah, a lot of that stuff would um, would live locally. We didn't yet have a systematized way for uploading things to the mothership, and that's something that I really want to start thinking about because this is going to directly affect me in Lagash, where we also generate mountains and mountains of data, and we also have a very bad internet connection. So what I ended up doing actually is I was really impressed with using that local file server and having, I mean, it's very old school now, but having all our computers there in the office on Ethernet talking to that same file. Well, not all of them, just the ones that had the huge amounts of data, like the one that had to process the photogrammetry. The other ones could do it via Wi-Fi, no problem. But I've been bumping up against the storage space of my own projects and things I've been doing for myself, you know, and moving some things off of my computer onto hard drives using iCloud so I have access to things on the go, but it might not be loaded. So I still need an internet connection to download them. I've been, uh, I've been wrestling with this for a while. I also call data, right? So there's things that, you know, a part of a project and at a certain point, I'm like, I don't need that anymore. You know, these, these antecedents to whatever I'm producing. Mm -hmm. But I decided that I wanted to try a different tack. So I got myself a server here too at home. I just installed it still configuring it today just the parts all arrived Mm -hmm. the other day (laughs) i was initially going to get a qnap because of my good initial first experience yeah i was going to get a four drive one and then uh raid five so i'd have you know if i did four terabyte drives i'd have 12 terabytes to work with in the end i went with a two drive synology one just kind of like the looks of its software better. And so I got two eight terabyte drives and they're mirrored. So if one of them dies, the other one will continue going. And that gives me eight terabytes to play with. And that's well more than enough room for any of the projects I do. And then I can start to consolidate these disparate hard drives I've had onto this. Uh, I still have to come up with a good strategy for how I deal with this long-term. Mm-hmm. And it makes me a little nervous that I don't have you know a cloud backup at the moment if I'm using <laughs> this, but I'll cross that bridge. Anyhow, the, the whole point of this is that you know all that data that we were generating gave me a little experience in how to sync things back up to the mothership and made me think about how I manage my own data. And so I'm going to be using that to experiment with. I mean, it cost me a few hundred bucks, uh, 650 roughly for the, the Synology DS220 Plus and those two eight terabyte drives. But I think that at the end of it, I'll have a much better sense of how an archaeological project can really manage that data, get the things that need to be, you know, put into, you know, shared server space on Dropbox or Box or Ignite or any Google Drive or whatever the project as a whole is using where multiple people can access them and how it can also have that those antecedent data types, the photographs I use in photogrammetry, for example, live right. locally so they can be worked on quickly but don't have to, in the end, be uploaded. That, that stuff, when you're done with, it can be archived, can be put on a couple hard drives, put in a couple places and be done with. So, you know, this is, this is a work in progress. This is going to be an experiment, a long-term experiment. <laughs> but putting my money where my mouth is here, and I want to see how this actually plays out. Nice. Nice. Cool. Well, a couple of more things to talk about here. You mentioned iPhone LiDAR scanning, which came out on the iPhone a few years ago. But did you actually get right. to use it here, or were you just kind of playing with your own iPhone out there? 
Well, that's funny because I was playing with my own iPhone. Um, I also have uh, an iPhone 12 Pro. I bought it just before the 13 came out. I mean, like a mm-hmm. week before the 13 came out because my, <laughs> my other phone died. I initially bought the 12, which I liked the color of better than the 12 Pro, the blue. I thought was really nice. Got it home and realized it didn't have the LiDAR. And so then took it to, uh, back to the Apple store the next day and said, whoops, bought the wrong model. Um <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've played with the LiDAR in the past a few times. I downloaded a whole bunch of different programs and tested them out, and they all had their strengths and weaknesses. I ended up calling it down to just one program called Polycam, one app called Polycam, which also exists for Android, and then continued to not use it because I didn't have any call for it. It was just a toy. Well, this time on the burials, I actually did scans of the burials, and you know, you said you forgot to do this. There are a couple of places I forgot to take measurements. Oh, yeah. You know, fortunately, the burials were all in the same area. The, the soils were exactly the same. The depth of the top layer was, you know, a little thicker in some places, a little thinner in some in others, but generally around, you know, 40 to 60 centimeters. And the maximum depth was 60 centimeters to just over a meter, depending on uh, how far down we went in any particular trench. But I failed to take the proper measurements everywhere. So what I did is I went and I scanned. Well, I didn't know that failed to take them, but (laughs) fortunately I had scanned these burials beforehand. And this was what was absolutely amazing to me. Uh, You know, I'm doing the photogrammetry with Metashape and it's making beautiful geo-referenced images, ortho mosaics that I bring right into my GIS and overlay on the the, the plan of the area. But with Polycam, I just go and spend maybe a minute scanning a, a burial. Nice. Another minute, minute and a half as it processes, and suddenly I've got that 3D model right there on the phone. I can take measurements on that 3D model. Nice. I took certain measurements, you know, to see how accurate it was. I had certain things I measured in real world with tape. Yeah. And I compared that against what I measured with the uh, in the Polycam model. They were the same. So that meant wow. that I could trust the depths that I forgot to take. And so as I was tidying up my notes last week, I relied on those Polycam models a lot. And you can really mm-hmm. see that, the, the, you know, the detail isn't as good as what I was getting with Metashape, but it is really phenomenally good regardless. <laughs> <laughs> and that it takes just a few minutes. This is yeah. absolutely 100% going to be in my toolkit here on out. And I think I have to pay for the uh, full version of the program so I can export my OBJ files. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just, you know, and share them with other people if they need to look at them. Uh, I yeah. can't see why one would not be using this. That's awesome. It's, uh, I, I just downloaded it actually. I, I can't believe I hadn't downloaded it before because I think you have talked about this when we first talked about LiDAR mm-hmm. on the iPhones, but I just, again, I never really had a, a strictly good use case for it and I probably still don't, but it's kind of fun and I'm definitely going to play around with it, but yeah, I mean, somebody like you that mostly does survey, I don't know how, how helpful it would be on survey. Sure. There may be if you find some interesting feature, right? You know, So I could mm-hmm. see myself using it uh, if I'm surveying in Arabia and, uh, and I come across a, a somewhat unusual cairn, for example. Yeah. Uh, I could definitely see myself scanning that cairn just so I've got another record of it. It's not, it doesn't take very long. The detail is much better than what you'd expect. And it allows you to spin things around and look at things and measure things. So again, forgot to do this. Whoops. I forgot <laughs> to measure the diameter of that cairn. Well, now I can yeah. just, you know, I could, my choices are either say it's about two and a half meters or I can measure it and say, oh yeah, it's two meters 60. Nice. So wrapping this segment up, 
there's a lot of stuff on here that we've talked about, but I didn't see one mention of drones. Did you guys not have them out there or was it regulatory? What's going on there? It's regulatory. Okay, so that's what I figured. They have them. They use them for a variety of projects. Some of the projects I was on, but they just did not use them in the phase that I was there. So, mm-hmm. you know, we'll see what else gets done. But that's, you know, it's, it's regular tool in the toolkit <laughs> to get some nice drone ortho mosaics that you can then yeah. use in your GIS. You can use them for the planning, whether it's excavation or conservation or, you know, mitigation, whatever's going on. That drone imagery really helps we just like that didn't generate any new drone imagery when i was there and that was regulatory that was because they need specific permits for specific projects and those hadn't come through while i was in in the field okay yeah well i also sensed that our audience was getting thirsty so i had to say it right here at the end Mm. so Mm -hmm. thank you Indeed. All right. So we just have a couple minutes left and I see one last little bullet point down here that says bonus Ashley and hand axes. Let's hear about that. Yeah. Okay. So uh, <laughs> this is where I'm going to get in trouble if I talk about this too much, but I'm going to say, holy cow, we found a Julian hand axes. Well, by we, <laughs> I mean awesome. other people on the project. I was not on the survey at the time, but uh, oh. we found at least a half dozen. And then I went out there where we measured them in with the, with the GNSS receiver. So we have exact precise locations on them and uh, helped with the photography of them in C2 and bagging them up and bringing them back into the, uh, the lab so they can be studied. But this was around a relic lake, lake bed, and it's phenomenal to find something that old and so many of them. I mean, this is clearly a site around this, uh, this old lake bed. Yeah. I mean, that's got to be pretty top of your list of some of the oldest things you've ever seen in the field, if not the oldest. I but think hard that to say, is though. the oldest. Maybe around Lagash? No, nothing like that. Nothing that old. Nothing no, like that. Um, yeah. No. Okay. Lagash would have been underwater, I believe, back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. I suppose so. All right. Well, this has been great, Paul. I'm glad it's glad to have you back. It's awesome to to keep this going. Do you got any plans for the summer where you're going to be out, at least out of the country? Actually, I'm going to be out of the country later this week. Uh, actually, tomorrow. <laughs> so by the time you hear this, I'm probably out of the country. I'm going right. to Copenhagen for the ICANA conference. That's the International Congress nice. on the Archaeology of the Ancient Near East. And um, we have a workshop there on the site of Lagash. So I'll be giving a little talk and yeah that'll be interesting yeah we'll see uh most of the most interesting talks are going to be before i arrive of course and then you know other (laughs) ones i really want to go to as is typical for conferences conflict with each other (laughs) of course but i'll make the best out of it okay cool well again we look forward to uh a lot more good podcast this summer and man if we can get this going we've we've failed for various technological reasons twice in a row but i am really hoping that our episode after this is with paul martin who was mentioned on the episode about doing the louisiana archaeology just i mean a few months ago and he was the one that brought out the uh the dogs that he used for you know finding some of the fun some of the things they found there so we just had some real logistical issues and we're going to try one more time to get this recorded so i really hope we can bring that because it sounds like it's going to be a an interesting interview so all right well with that thanks everybody we'll see you in a couple weeks and thanks again paul thanks chris take care Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. 
Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.